0: Hey everyone, back again. Today I want to talk about Michel Foucault's notion of discourse analysis. Now he doesn't actually use that term, discourse analysis, but discourse analysis is very much indebted to him. So this is me going to present what discourse analysis is with an eye towards Foucault's contribution to the term. Now, before I jump into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineau. If you're new here, hi. Welcome, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, most of the people watching this aren't already subscribed. So what are you doing? Subscribe, it'll help me out. Uh, If you wanna help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. There are links for all those things in the description. If you found this on YouTube, you're gonna be able to find it in podcast form if you're interested in that at all. Or if you found this in podcast form, you're gonna be able to find the video on YouTube If you're into that at all. So, yeah, let's jump into this term. Now, I mentioned that he doesn't actually use this term, and the way I'm understanding it here is coming from his text called The Archaeology of Knowledge, which I've actually covered with a buddy of mine on here. If you want to go listen to our episodes on that, I'm sure you'll get a kick out of it. Uh, But it's an incredibly complicated text, and in a lot of ways, it's, it's a way for him to rethink some of his central theses that he presented in. The order of things, originally called in French des mots et les choses, which is also directly translates to words and things. And the archaeology of knowledge is largely a way for him to understand how unities of statements can come into existence. Now, I want to be really clear and I want to be very simple. What he's describing is how seemingly different statements can be clumped into categories that could then be understood that could then be deployed to attain knowledge to understand the world so for example how is there any kind of confluence or any kind of symmetry or similarity between i don't know aristotle's thinking about physics and Newton's thinking about physics, or Newton's thinking about physics versus Einstein's thinking about physics. Now, when we talk about it, we just kind of conveniently say, oh, well, Newton's talking about physics, maybe Aristotle's not the best example, let's say Newton's talking about physics, and then Einstein's also talking about physics. But between the two of them are vast differences, yet we make our lives easy by saying that they belong to this similar discipline physics and that joins them together now this this joining together allows two broad things to occur it allows advances in that field to occur and it allows people outside of that field to study and approach that field so then you can have uh, you can have programs and universities framed around physics you can have, Uh, textbooks framed around physics that give people a kind of entryway into this domain called physics. But the unity between these different ideas, these different statements, these different thinkers within this field is going to differ. It's going to differ drastically. And so we've kind of butchered these thinkers in this field and molded it in order to fit a certain idea about what physics really is. So in order for that to happen, there had to not only be an agreement upon what counts as physics, there had to also be an agreement of what does not count as physics. So any statement that might emerge within physics can be engaged with through this lens of discourse analysis because discourse analysis looks at the ways in which language, statements, discourse, operate within a specific model of thought and belong to a specific paradigm of organization that permits some knowledge to emerge, some statements to emerge, while excluding other ones, while saying other ones don't exactly fit within that narrative. So discourse analysis, very simply as of now, is just an effort to parse through these narratives to find out upon which basis they rest how are they inscribed within a social atmosphere in order to gain legitimacy? Because physics is a legitimate field. It's a very important, legitimate field, but it doesn't just attain that status on its own. Of course, it has to be, we have to be taught that, and it has to be organized in such a way as to lend itself to, in some cases, mass audiences that can acknowledge it as being this reputable field. But discourse analysis doesn't only look at the organization of some statements, of some enunciations. It is also interested in how these enunciations and how these statements gain validity and how they actually come to be organized. So Foucault sets out, and it's very interesting in The Archaeology of Knowledge, he says that he started by looking at various theses, four theses, or hypotheses, and he said the first one was maybe that All of these different statements, like in the case of physics for example, are all organized as one singular thing. Maybe they're just organized around physics. So there's this thing in the world called physics, uh, or it corresponds to laws that organize the world and organize the universe, and so everything else that emerges that talks about physics, or that talk about physics, then belong to that domain. But of course with that hypothesis, he ran into a wall and that wall was that not all explanations about physics fall into the domain of physics for example flat earthers do not belong to physics even though for all intents and purposes a lot of what they do is physics they are discussing physics and trying to prove physics just their own version of physics yet that is not a narrative that can fit within that paradigm and you know rightly so but it begs the question how then do these statements come to be organized? If some explanations that talk about the thing we claimed was the core at 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 issue here—that is, physics—if some statements that talk about physics don't actually fit within that broader canon, there seems to be something else going on here. So he said, "Okay, maybe there's a an organizing principle around like the themes of physics. Maybe there are specific uh, themes that you know remain true across time at the and then." that combined you know Newton to Einstein even though they're many centuries apart maybe maybe there are themes that do that well the problem with that is that these themes are incredibly nebulous and they aren't clear at all and they're going to be changing across time and space i mean the concerns of Newton largely uh, you know located uh, in in his own way were were entirely perhaps not entirely but they were very much reevaluated and overhauled with Einstein's theories. And so what we see then is, within the domain of physics, actually a repudiation of themes for the emergence of new themes. And with, you know, quantum physics and whatnot, we would see the same thing happen against Einstein. So themes don't seem to be a great discerning uh, imperative or principle for, you know, joining together these very different ideas and statements. So he says, well, maybe, maybe it's the style, maybe it's like a certain kind of writing, that is going to permit this. And that, as you've probably guessed, is pretty unsatisfactory given the fact that, you know, the way that physics is done has changed drastically over time. Uh, and the, the places in which it has occurred has changed drastically over time. There seems to hardly be any kind of universality or consistency in how it has been conducted. And the same applies to other fields as well, like chemistry, like uh, psychopathology, like the study of grammar and, you know, anything any field of study has undergone these kinds of mutations that call into question how we have been able to see the galvanization of various statements around a central theme, or a central idea, or topic, or object of study, yet they're always changing, and they're always mutating, yet we've all agreed and see that there is a fundamental connection between Newton and Einstein, yet we don't know, if we're actually pressed, how they are joined together, now what seems to be more the case is that within these fields, there are these ruptures, there are these discontinuities between very similar ideas, and this isn't to say that Newton and Einstein shouldn't be clumped together, but it's important to acknowledge that within these organizations are discontinuities, are ruptures, are splits, are breaks that problematize and call into question that very unity. So discourse analysis is also going to be concerned with these elements of discourse that aren't said and things that aren't seen these ruptures these breaks yet are nevertheless present within this very dynamic because it is within the unseen within the unheard that we can glean a lot about what is actually seen and what is actually heard so one way i like to think about this and it might be kind of a simple way to think about it as with conspiracy theories, where in the case of conspiracy theories, we can learn a lot about conspiracy theorists based off of what they don't say in addition to what they do say. So, for example, even though there's overwhelming evidence that there's, like, a white dude conspiracy to organize the world, I mean, white men have the most uh, wealth and power on the entire globe, there don't seem to be that many, among conspiracy theorists, there don't seem to be that many narratives that say, oh wow, no, there's a white male conspiracy to try to take over the world. It seems as though uh, conspiracies or conspiracy theories are only reserved for marginalized people, like Jewish people or like women organizing to overthrow you know, the American way of life or whatever. And so, by looking at what isn't said In this discourse in the conspiracy theorist lexicon and here we're really focusing on like the big-name conspiracy theorists the Alex Jones the David Ikes of the world these type of people by looking at what isn't said within their discourse we can actually glean a lot from what is said and it reveals the extent to which that their discourse operates as an extension of a fundamental status quo one that largely privileges white men in these contexts And we also see the same thing in other contexts, depending on who the majority group is there. And this is part of my own study, is that um, there's this one YouTube uh, channel titled Voice TV in Nigeria, in which they uh, point to white people as being these conspirators on a global level. And so it's interesting there to see how in that context where white people don't make up the majority, we can see this capacity to point the finger at white men. Who essentially very much control the world. And that calls into question then what elements within this course are excluded and included? And how does looking at this, how does interrogating this, almost acting like a, an investigator, reveal the extent to which that the speaker operates within accordance to other social codes and cultural conventions that happen to be the dominant ones? That happen to be the ones that establish and delineate or uh, make out what is proper speech, what are proper things that can be studied, what are proper points of connection that can be drawn between, in the case of conspiracy theories, who can be pointed to as being uh, a conspirator. Is it only Jewish people or is it uh, can they be white men who as all evidence points to the fact, there does seem to be a lot of white men with a lot of power signaling that there might be a kind of conspiracy afoot. So we see then that even though there are disparate thoughts and ideas, like in the case of conspiracy theories, where Alex Jones and David Icke are not on the same level at all, they talk about very different things, they both fall into the camp of conspiracy theories. We know that they can then be clumped together, not because there's this kind of unitary universal thing that is the conspiracy theory that they both talk about. No, what really binds them together is the fact that there is an entire enterprise dedicated to establishing some forms of thought as conspiracy theories, as illegitimate, as being like deviant or outside of the norm. And so by virtue of that, they can then fall into a certain uh, clumping category of disrepute. So it doesn't say anything about themselves. But rather, these organizational frameworks that emerge around discourse to group discourse together and statements together is largely motivated by the exertion of a kind of force, an exertion of power, to make it so that these narratives don't stray too far from one another, and that they can be better understood, better mapped, better coordinated, and really better uh, controlled. Now the task here is not to say that all of these knowledges that fall into the under the the domain of discourse as statements are all going to be subjugated or all going to be uh, determined or oppressed by these mechanisms of ordering or of power some of them are very much going to be in league with the very status quo like alex jones like david Icke. these people that very much benefit from this system so discourse analysis is then concerned with the organization of these statements those points of disorganization and discontinuity of these statements, the ways in which power is motivated to keep these ruptures at bay in order to keep this organization clear, and then how some narratives within these discursive paradigms are going to operate to maintain a status quo, while some are going to resist that status quo, are going to call attention to it. Now, this means moving beyond Uh, you know the semiotic thing of finding attachment between signs and signifiers and signifieds and everything like that or the process of trying to find like intention or motivation behind certain statements to say that like well if we just understood what the author was thinking in their head then we can find the truth of the statement and that is because in almost every single case statements once they have been expressed depart from their speaker, or the writer, or whatever, and exists then within a certain economy of discursive practices and organizations that are going to then position that statement within a certain framework, and are going to then determine whether or not that statement is going to be permitted, or going to be uh, excluded, is going to be shunned, it's going to be uh, derided, whatever. And so discourse analysis is concerned with how a statement exists within an economy of meaning, be it cultural, social, economic, uh, political, and how it exists within that sphere, how it is taken up, what purpose does that discourse serve? Is it going to maintain certain status quo? Is it gonna call attention to it? Is it gonna operate at the behest of various authority figures? Is it gonna oppose them? How is the very opposition of these authority figures going to be called into question by the by the very clever tactics of these organizing principles that actually subsume counter-narratives, make these counter-narratives work in favor of these organizing systems? And that's essentially what discourse analysis tries to do. Uh, and I hope that that was somewhat clear, able to give you a better idea for those people out there that are working on a method section of a paper or something and you want to look into discourse analysis or to apply it. I hope I was able to give you a little bit of uh, information there. Clearly going to check out the archaeology of knowledge would be the best way to go about doing this. Uh, But yeah, if you uh, like what I did, like, share, subscribe, anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, catch you next time. Take care.